This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Hello and welcome to another UK Coaching Skill Acquisition Podcast. This podcast is part of a series exploring an ecological approach to understanding theories of learning and coaching. I'm delighted to be joined by another fabulous guest. So could you please introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit more about your coaching background? For this one, I am joined by James Rudd. So a huge welcome to you. And um, could you please start by introducing yourself for us? Yeah, sure. Hello, Marianne. It's um, fantastic to be on um, this really innovative podcast, which is uh, providing access to what can be quite a complex and overwhelming topic. But once you kind of get through that, it can be a very powerful um, tool and a perspective of how you can improve your practice, both in coaching, PE teaching, across the landscape from junior sport up to elite athletes. So, yeah, thank you very much. And congratulations to you for taking, um, taking on this challenge. So who am I? Uh, yeah, Dr. James Rudd from Liverpool John Moores University. Um, I've been teaching her now on lecturing there for the last four years. I make sure once a year that I actually go out into schools. Um, and that's actually to teach myself. So to keep myself developing that experiential experience, which is so, so important to understanding how to keep developing your pedagogical practice and your teaching and learning and understanding the children you're working with. So, yeah, so I guess that's me. Um, and I work on both, yeah, so very much practical and I train the teachers of tomorrow uh, and the coaches because a lot of teachers will actually go into, or te- teachers will go into coaching or already are coaches. Um, yeah, so I, I guess that's me. Okay, thank you very much. So one of the nice things that you're bringing to this is to look at that this ecological approach from a physical literacy um, point of view. So looking at for young children and developing physical skills rather than just a sports specific angle, which is brilliant. So um, uh, that's my next question is, how and why did you end up exploring an ecological or constraints led approach? Yeah, okay. So um, it wasn't a suddenly I just jumped in on this, to be honest. Um, I was say before coming into academia as a teacher or teaching in schools in South East London. It was at the time of the London Olympics um, or just before, in fact. And they were trying to they put secondary school teachers into primary schools to support their development of the PE programmes. And that got me very interested in teaching and learning pedagogy and the importance of movement. And the, it was very clear to me, and this is where physical literacy comes in, most children who are good movers had better outcomes across the board. So they had better health and well-being more generally, um, more, more attuned, shall we say, to their environments, that being in the class or being out in uh, the playground at lunchtime and being active. So what came very clear to me was the importance of developing good movers for ongoing health and well-being um so that that was something I was it really got me interested in uh the importance of movement uh, through my 
PhD. Um, I actually focus more on motor development and probably an information processing theory, um, which again was a good learning curve. It's not where I am now, but it still gave me a lot of um, insights into uh, methodologies, um, understanding the importance of good um, study designs, these types of things. Um, but it did have more of an emphasis on the brain of controlling movements um, and didn't really take into account the environments that the children are in. It was more focused on the individual themselves. That was problematic for me because one thing you learn from when you're in schools and the schools I were in, in like low SES, so socioeconomic status was um, very deprived areas in southeast London, like um, Peckham's, your, 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 your Elephant and Castles, your Old Kent Road is actually where one of my schools was, and that's if you know the Monopoly board yes. of it. Yeah, so working there, what you do realise, but then I had schools in Dulwich as well. So what you start to see is the importance of the, the environment in development of, of movement um, and the importance to understand the role that's playing and that's what probably first got me interested in ecological dynamics um, alongside myself actually finding I was shifting towards a more exploratory end of teach of um, saying my teaching styles I, I was shifting towards more problem solving exploration um, and, and then it was trying to find a theories of motor learning which can would support that or, or be complementary to that. And that's really, I'd say, where, where, where the journey started for me. So um, I, what I find really interesting there is that you started in an information processing uh, and, and have sort of take, you know, sort of moved in that direction. And that's, um, that's really, I mean, I did as well. So obviously I did both and connectionism and lots of other things that I'm trying to forget. <laughs> But um, it's, I, I think maybe for people listening to this, it's really important to, to recognize that, um, you know, most of us, it's not that we haven't heard of other things, that we've explored a lot of stuff or people have explored a lot of stuff. And, and um, I wouldn't say that constraints approach is the only one that I would use you know, or I would insist other people did. But there's, it's really fascinating to make sure you dig deep into all of these and have it as you can and have a really, you know, an understanding of why. I can't stress that enough, actually. Uh, it's something I think you've got to understand it's a journey people have been on. Like, if you speak to the professors in the area of very esteemed, they would yeah. have been back from an information processing, but have now kind of made that transition. Um, it, it's, yeah, it, it, you should, you, it's really important to get, get a broad perspective and make up your own mind and the reasons why you believe this is an approach you want to take forward um yeah and be creative and exploratory and what you use with <laughs> the same thing so i um, thank you very much uh yeah I, that's that's really fascinating and uh so the next question is um if you could just let us know a little bit about what an ecological approach would look like in your practice and 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 as you moved um in your thinking and uh, you have answered that a little bit already or a bit as you move you're thinking what what were the things that changed in either how you thought about your practice or how you um how you approached it 
Yeah, okay. So this is a fascinating question and it, and it's one which um, is a constant, continual journey for me on this because things are changing as more as I understand things a, a little bit more. Um, I guess one of the major, major changes for me has been about my role within the PE lessons or in the coaching sessions. So it's moving away from that being... And what ecological dynamics has taught me, let me let me look at it that way. So what it's actually taught me is it's taught me that we've got to understand there's going to be in a class of 30 children in especially fire or any class in a small in an in an environment, there's going to be incredible, there's going to be a level of uncertainty. And we've got to, and if we appreciate it as a a self-organization organizing system on on a number of levels so we can look at this at at a child level and understand that through their interactions with the environment and the information they're picking up is going to really organize the actions which come out uh, or or which we would observe so it's first of all for me as a teacher it's a tuning into not the individual I'm not child-centered and I'm not focused on the environment. It's that interaction between the child and the environment. And in a way, the way they're engaging into that environment tells me a lot about where they are in their, their movement development, their physical literacy, all, all these areas. But then it's also understanding and appreciating that this, we can look up a level of analysis. And what I mean by that is we cannot look at it just at an individual level. I can look at it over a class and really understand that in a, in a class, there's going to be, um, a, a self-organization process happening now if I'm too on top of the children and trying to control all these actions and control all the tasks and how they do things actually when I'm taking away a lot of that exploration and self-organization opportunity so first thing to, for practically what it says is you have to appreciate and plan for uncertainty in your PE lessons or your coaching experiences so a key way of me doing that was really going um, in the lesson plan side of things or, or on, on my plan. It's going, I wouldn't just do a, a linear type of lesson plan where I have five minutes in this activity, five minutes here, 10 minutes at the end. Like it, it really, that, that went out the window for me. So what I did instead is I, I really started to think about who these children are in front of me or in the class but also what's the environment so we've talked about the environment and what's that school environment and the, or the hall environment or the playground environment like what features does that have I can exploit or maybe actually may provide barriers to me um, but then also I can look wider and look at their social environment again in the school Old Kent Road schools in special measures I've probably got a lot of re- um, kids with a number of uh, self-regulation can be quite a challenge for them, shall we say. So it's trying to appreciate some of those to help me pick out what, how they're going to interact with certain tasks, certain activities. Um, but, but even wider, like in a, at a community level, like what, what's, and this is what comes into the environment. So if you're going to teach dance, now if you're a coach in schools, one thing I'd like to say is you, you shouldn't be just teaching your sport you teach outside, maybe. It's really important, important that we're giving children a, a real broad understanding of how to move. And the best way to do that is to teach them dance, gymnastics, 
team games in range a whole broad spectrum because actually those games create constraints. Those games and activities will make them move in ways they haven't moved before. And, and that's important to give them that rich variety. But, but then, so, as I say, and that can be a bit daunting. I remember the first time I went into school, so I'm, I'm going a bit off a bit on this. I was asked to teach Tudor dance. And I was like, oh, crap, what the hell's Tudor dance? So there I was doing all the bows and curtsies and we were doing like the Mary Pole. And, and, and anyway, it was ridiculous. But in a way, I look back and the kids enjoyed it because they were learning about the history in, 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 their, um, in their lessons as well. We're learning about the Tudors. So we were able to enact some of it. And actually, at the time, I didn't realise, but I saw them doing lots of spinning, lots of leaping, lots of playing with ribbons and... And actually, so they're exploring their bodies and engaging in activities which haven't. So then contextually, it was relevant to their, 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 their school experience. But you can take that wider. You can take that to, um, for instance, I had some of my placement students working in schools and they got involved in a forest school program at the school. And we decided, well, actually, this is a very urban school, but let's teach dance in the forest school. And actually, just through that different setting and the environment that creates, the children become very rich, um, sort of more pagan. Or dances um, uh, uh, emerged due to this environment and, and how they're interacting. But you wouldn't have got in a school hall. So it's again, it's being creative and thinking and working. Actually, teachers love this type of thing as well because they kind of work. They don't realise they're doing it. They're working on a very similar, similar level. So I think one, it's it, and also then it's looking at um, in some of the schools we teach African dancing and, and and these types. Which again, it's more of the students were teaching me as we go, and it's that co-design of how these things come about. And that's wonderful because it it pulls them in. But then at the other side of this, what, what what's very rich and, and my role and my the thing I, t- I teach my students is. That an explicit level, that's wonderful. You at an implicit level, and the children implicitly, is then trying to um, enable them to explore different movements and, and come up with different solutions to problems and, and, and really carry on with this, this exploration um, through movement. And, and, and that, so that's key. And that's where, I guess, the, the nonlinear pedagogy comes into me because it, it designs then how I'm bringing in, um, forming my instructions, these types of things. But getting right back to originally my lesson planning. So I moved away from this linear form of lesson plans we see. And I'll share this for you in the blog. And what we came up with was a more of a cyclical process where we said, well, we'll have three activities, which we know the children are, are going to identify and engage in and going to love doing and allow them to explore movements. And actually, if activity one is going really well and there's lots of exploration, lots of searching for information in the environment, lots of adaptations going, we'll leave that for the whole lesson. That's fine. We don't need to go on to activity two, three. So it's working at that level and having the confidence to go no you know what what I'm seeing here is very rich it's very they're getting a lot in out of it so I'm going to keep it here 
and, and that's fine. And then you will go around and, and, and as you become a more skilled practitioner and understanding how the theory and practice merge and nonlinear pedagogy in Judge Chow's work is wonderful for this, is how you then can start improving your practice through creating external attention or focusing your questioning and your feedback. Um, you're making sure in your lesson design that perception action is coupled as well all the time and we're not reducing the movement into parts. So there's a, there's a, there's a lot to do that there. Um, and I guess the final thing, and I can talk more on this nonlinear pedagogy aspects in a minute, is starting to identify as you're observing children in their environment and those interactions. And, and when you start to see children almost becoming stable in their movement, so you've set up a task of exploring the environment. In my, I've, I've used a gruffalo line gymnastics, and they will be exploring as a mouse going through the forest trying to find the animals and they're interacting all the equipments laid out so interacting but once you see them sliding under the same way three or four times we need to perturbate or destabilize that action so that's when I would create a teaching moment maybe it's for that child or maybe it'd be for the class depending on what I'm seeing now that perturbation can be a very small, and it doesn't mean I have to stop the whole class and go, right, sit down, so I want you to do net. It could be, in fact, I go over to one child quietly and said, oh, you're going to be the fox. Can you try and try to catch the other's children? And then suddenly, through that slight, very small um, little constraint I've manipulated, the whole class will come alive. And actually, if I don't tell the other children... They have to attune to that information and figure out what's going on. So what we start to see is cognitively as well, and this is when physical literacy, and it's not just about the movement, it's cognitions embedded. So through scanning the environment and tuning to it, they start to see the dynamics. Something's changed. We have to figure it out. But suddenly you'll see this cascade and all children leaping, jumping, moving, and finding different ways to interact with the equipment. And it's not just for anything I've, it's through something I've done, but not something I've stopped the class and said. And, and that's what's very powerful about this approach when we get going. And, and I've been working on this a lot in primary school, by what I'm working on in elite sport with Carl Woods and these guys. So these, 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 um, this works across the landscape. Um, yeah. But there's the two things. You're, you're, they're becoming um, skillful movers and adaptive movers, but they're also um, they're learning to constantly look for information that might be useful for them. They learn to search for that information as well because it's yeah. because you haven't got this stable risk. You haven't got this environment that's stable. You're perturbing it. You're changing it. And I, I think you're again. I'm only I've off sound, but I think actually those higher skilled will search more you'll see more of the searching type of behavior to understand and adapt to that environment and and that's kind of what we want actually there's not it the tasks doesn't need to be simplified to the same level so a they're not overcome with information they're able to functionally survive in again i water it's it's not my areas it's crisp buttons i know you have one later on but, 
what 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 it does what it does allow them to do is they can functionally swim, float, etc. They can do that, so that it allows them time to search and understand that environment. We're in. But anyway, yeah, we're getting a bit off topic. To uh, sorry, my 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 right. <laughs> I was just trying to pull out that it's it's movements and answer it's the movement and the search yeah. that's really important yeah. there. so brilliant which kind of leads us on nicely to what have been the benefits and challenges for you of embracing this or working in this way more yeah the, the benefits have it's opened me up to a, a really it helps me understand um it's really, it's, 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 it's been, it's been a fascinating journey. And what it, I guess it's enabled me to be is creative in my own curriculum design and maybe, and question and lead me on a journey of understanding things which uh, allow me to really get to the bottom of, sorry, Marianne, I'm going to start that bit again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think that uh, that leads us on really nicely, actually, to um, what you think the benefits and the challenges have been in adopting a more ecological approach. Yeah, the benefits are, is for me, the enjoyment of the children. Uh, a very, if we think about what I was talking about before, um, really able to relate the tasks to them and their context and and allowing them to take autonomy and uh, when I'm saying that kind of freedom over their movement practice and, and that's been a very enjoyable process to see um, and it's helped my practice and, and maybe a better, more thoughtful practitioner that I'm not on top of the children or trying to direct every little thing. So actually I have a lot more energy because... I'm not shouting or I'm not doing, I, I, I've, I've done the hard work before through, through allowing them coming up with these activities I know they're going to love, but also allow them to explore different movements. And so that, that and, and then the real getting into the nonlinear pedagogy and then thinking about like my, my instructions and how I'm giving those and the feedback I'm giving. And when I do step in, and at what level do I step into the whole class? Or do I just, instead of de- stopping the class for a demonstration, I may say, right, I've seen Jack and uh, Mary really struggling with this activity. So I'll pull them aside and say, look, let's just watch how these four children over here are, are doing the activity and, and asking them what they see and what they're noticing and starting a two-way conversation, which really develops a nice rapport with a student of the children and then going, okay, that's great. Well, why don't you go in and have another go? That's far more, so they've actually watched the demonstration, but it's been in context. So I guess there's the real benefits you can start to see as me, I've become much more mature as a, as a, a practitioner. Um, and academically, I'm able to ask um, much more pertinent questions to improve PE in schools. Um, PE in schools has been very little in the movement literature beyond fundamental movement skills, etc. where I've started. 
but it's now moving me away from, from that. Um, what are the challenges? Well, like with anything, you've still got 30 children inside of a, a badminton court in it with a school piano and you've got a, a dinner ladies trying to get in, trying to kick you out and all that. Like, there's no bigger challenge. Like, I, I, I really would put in a, any coach, an elite coach in a, in a primary school with five and six-year-olds and the amount of self-regulation going on and thing which you have to deal with it is it, 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 it's exhausting. So I have so much respect and time for any coaches and teachers who, who work in this. And, and, and in fact, it's, it's such an important, important um, time for children and, and for us to get right but teachers don't like teaching PE and there's a reason because of these self-regulation activities. But if we can kind of get that through their intentions of the children engaged in the tasks and the activities, and it doesn't have to be to be the best basketball player or playing football or, or tennis, you don't need to teach them. You just got to get them, give them positive movement experiences and create enriched environments which they can explore. I do that a lot through storytelling. So that's a really nice way to kind of, you keep a, a narrative, you keep a structure um, and you keep them in a focus, but they can explore moving their bodies. And, and, and I guess something else is, I haven't mentioned, but it's really important, is that you're not really trying to, um, through this approach, look at an optimal movement solution or a, a technique which looks like a, um, Wayne Rooney or... Yeah, Neymar. We're not looking for that level of of technique uh, or, or being able to perform of performance. Actually, through this, we're looking at what's functional for them in that environment. So that, that's very important, and allowing and we accept that. So actually, it, for all these children, we different stages of their physical literacy journey, and, and and we should respect that and allow them to explore um, those movements. Uh, um, and where they're at. Yeah, I, I, so you, the, the youngsters that you work with, well, I suppose all of the children, that's so important, isn't it? Because otherwise in their classroom, you've got some that are confident and others who are trying to sort of error correct themselves to the movement pattern of the confident ones, which is not where yeah, they're and at. That, and I think we've got to be very careful because from physical itch point, of like, it's actually their perceived confidence and competence as well so if we start having this more ego orientated focus on you should be performing like this and in, in this way and it needs to look this technique we all come in different shapes and sizes and we're all at different stages some children will have had parents who have been playing in their back garden since the age of six and six months etc throwing balls at them doing activities we don't see any of that but that will have happened Aversely, there'll be some children who have sat in front of a, a screen and had very little interactions. So, and, and, and so we've got, so rather focusing on the individual's functional and what's functional and do they, can we help them um, be, have success? That's enough. And it moves us away from this uh, ego orientated focus to this more task orientated. Were you able to do that? Okay, that's brilliant. Let's try it another way. Can you show me a different way you could do that? And that works across the board. And, and, and actually, so, yeah, we, we aren't trying to, 
yeah, no. So but that's really what we're, we're trying to do. We've got to, to respect where a child is at, on their, their movement journey and, and then just work with them from there. And, it, and it's finding different, or not finding a functional way which works for them. Once it stabilizes, we perturbate it. It could free from manipulation of equipment and constraints, or it, it could be through some form of feedback or instruction. Manipulation of constraints is far more powerful because as we were talking before this conversation, Marianne, our primary sense is visual and we rely on that. So if you actually manipulate the constraints in an environment or change in equipment or change this, we will see self or re-self-organization uh, of the movements and, and them happen to do. So I use that primarily. I will change the size of a ball. I'll say, right, now do this with a partner. All of this involves, and I haven't, rather than me telling them, I'll find a different way. Because actually that, that in itself is a bit, a bit tricky because actually the information in the environment might not be there for that. So I've got to create information, new information in the environment potentially. Now I sometimes do that through imagination. So it'll be like, let's move like a different character in the book. That creates, and, but again, I'm not telling them how to move. It's just they may now go from moving like a mouse to moving like a monkey. They now no longer, or a sna- um, they're now jumping on top of equipment, climbing up things. It, but that's up to them how they do that. Um, they're specifying different information. That, that's my role. And, and probably having a lot more fun and having stuff yeah. they can take away play at home. <laughs> yes. We're all, I'm having far more fun, much fun. And actually, <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day as well, and I'm not stressed because I've been trying to, trying to crush this, uh, this enthusiasm, which then, if you're not careful, turns into this more kind of toxicity. So you've got certain kids who just don't want to, a listen and then yeah so you've got to appreciate and use that enthusiasm the children have had and if you've got them in lines and this they get frustrated and you're gonna get they're doing this they're looking at a cone or a thing they're not specifying and they they, they want to do more they want to be exuberant and explore you've got to harness that if you don't that's when we run into trouble um but it's a fine line though there is obviously it can get enthusiastic and then a head gets bumped or something like that. So you, you do always have to be considering the safety side of this as well. But that comes within your task design, which should happen before you go in. You, you, even good teachers shouldn't be kind of doing this on the spot. It needs to be well thought through. And I, I was going to say, I think that leads really nicely to my last question, actually, which is, um, which is what are the top tips for somebody who would like to explore using an ecological approach um, for the first time, or who are struggling with it in, in that environment? And I think you've started um, a little yeah. bit to answer that. No, yeah, so I guess just carrying on what I said, so really it's about um, not... main thing is, is just there isn't... With an ecological approach, there's not a right way as such, as in it's not... There aren't, we aren't prescribing anything, but it's more of an appreciation of how children learn and the importance of that idea of they are tuning to information in that environment. Now that information can be you being there projecting all the time, 
but and, and can try and control. But through doing that, you're, you're potentially taking away their ability to self-organize. So you're kind of you're working against the natural way of how I see anyway now of how children learn. So you've got to go, well, first of all, tips would be to look at your environment you're in. And really before you look at that environment, look at that hall, look at that space you have. Think about how children you've got coming in are going to interact in this space and what activities are going to be possible and not possible and, and, and done in safely, but allow for exploration. Um, once you're kind of getting that nailed, it's about when, um, and, and I guess through that, it's looking at the activities you're, you're designing or these tasks. Can you contextualize them for something? Are you coming from something which like almost enriching that environment? So be young children, they love storytelling. So can we draw that in? Because actually it gives you a lot of analogies potentially you could use as well during that to get help them with exploration, especially if you're in a school hall, which has four walls, dinner tables, pianos, and, and very little informa other information they can actually tune into. It's like, well, actually, kids have wonderful imaginations. That creates analogies. You can use that. Again, it could be older children, and it could be, their favourite TV shows or, or these things. But that will only get your surface level. If not, then you're looking at it intentionally. Your intention is that's to kind of set up the framework, but then for you to really progress children and helping them attune to, to the information, which is going to help them um, perform the, the tasks, that's where your teaching practices come in. And this is where we start to look at, yeah, the, non, the non-linear pedagogy parts. And, and so I guess one of the main things it's around, if we, we look at that and we look at the non-linear pedagogy, we have a, a representative learning design. So for, for young children, especially, it's to, to enjoy what they have fun, okay, and also a generality. But there's no set, we're not trying to get, like we would with an elite, on specifying particular information, or a task we're letting them meet more broadly explore because they, they're creating a wider range of movements as they get and you need the information so in gymnastics i always have the equipment out because that creates they're always then it's always in there they've got to regulate their self-regulate their behavior about well if someone's already on the equipment i can't use that equipment i've got to find another piece of equipment so you see this kind of self-regulation and, and and a lot of that social aspects kind of kind of dealing with but then also they're starting to, the information creates opportunity by having that equipment in there. They can now go under something. They can go over. But it's a bit, they're jumping on and off things. These are all functional movement skills they're learning, which, okay, if they're out with their friends, they can safely jump over a fence or they can jump off a wall. But they're learning these things in PE, but through an activity. So, it's really starting to think about, yeah, I, I guess one, and if I was to give a couple of tips, it would be just don't feel like you have to meet certain um, very specific objectives to learn to do an overarm throw the correct way or to do an underarm roll in a, in a certain way or learn a forward roll. Have themes in lessons. So have a... Um, 
research like you can be sending and receiving and then the activities the free activities come up with give children lots of opportunities through games and etc to send and receive that will happen and then let that self-organization happen and then what you can if you if you are wanting to improve performance of course we all do that's where it will happen naturally but we can enhance it further by helping that specifying information through using the principles of nonlinear pedagogical principles of things like nonlinear pedagogy. Why that one instead of maybe a more information processing or direct instructions? Why? Because Jaid and everyone's worked very hard to align that to ecological dynamics. So the idea of having an external attention of focus is it supports self-organization. It allows that to happen. Okay. Through constraint manipulation, it supports that self-organization. The idea of perturbation, well, that supports adaptation. These are all things. So, so yeah, I think, I think I've been yeah, chatting away. No, that's absolutely brilliant. And it's, and, you know, what's really important here is those practical examples, you know, to the, the rich conversation and the examples that you're giving that will hopefully help these ideas really come to life for people so that thank you very very much that's that is very important and to yeah to to continue to reiterate those principles of nonlinear pedagogy so um brilliant thank you very very much it's been an absolute pleasure um, i've really enjoyed it thank you and, and and good luck and if people want to get in touch they're more than welcome i'm happy to yeah chat uh, to people Lovely, and you and you're happy to give us a, a, an, an example session plan for for stuff you do. A nice simple yeah. one that would be super yeah. to go with the to go with this and the blog. Brilliant! Thank you very much, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.